Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Hello and welcome to the Science of Sport. I am Professor Ross Tucker, as usual. Not as usual is that I'm flying solo on this particular episode, no mic today. And also perhaps not as usual is that this is the first of three podcasts on the sport of rugby union. We've done a couple on rugby, but I guess maybe surprisingly, given that it is literally my, my day job, we haven't really explored the sport and the science of rugby and the injuries in particularly great detail. And I, I'm not sure why that is. I suppose part of it is that, you know, this podcast is a passion project. It's almost an escape from our everyday lives. And so I haven't wished to conflate day jobs with this too much. And then I think also part of it is, you know, Mike and I both and many of you listening to this are endurance junkies, cyclists, runners, swimmers, triathletes. And so that's your passion. And so we've tended to focus on that. But that's about to change because... The next three episodes are going to be dedicated specifically to rugby union. And there are two reasons for that. The first is timing, in the sense that there's a World Cup currently on the go. The best women's rugby players in the world are down in New Zealand. They have been for the last two weeks, entering the third. I suppose by the time you've listened to this, it will be three weeks in and we'll be headed into the knockout stages. And it's been a fantastic tournament and what really is a fantastic time for the sport. You'll hear from both the guests in the next two episodes exactly how much women's rugby has advanced and grown over the last four or five years. And this World Cup is an opportunity to take the next steps towards that growth and development. It involves and brings with it, as you might imagine, some significant challenges, some unique, some uh, general to the sport of rugby as a whole. And both my guests, first this episode with Jess Hayden and the next episode with Dr. Araba Chinta, We'll explore some of those. We'll take a look at the past. We'll evaluate where we are in the present. And then we'll look forward to what needs to happen in the future. Then the third episode or installment of this particular mini-series will be a feedback session from two conferences that I'm about to depart for. I actually fly uh, in in the day or two. I head off first to London and then I'll be in Amsterdam for what is initially the Concussion Consensus Conference, where world authorities in concussion and sport will be gathering to discuss the latest research. And then immediately after that is the World Rugby Annual Scientific Meeting. And it's a two-day conference that will hear from many of the clinicians and researchers in the rugby space. Now, the first of those two conferences is this Concussion and Sport Conference, and it's controversial. Many of you, even with a passing interest, in the sport will be well aware that presently there are lawsuits, there are controversies, there are papers coming out monthly that are describing and discussing how repeated head injuries playing sport, and it's not unique to rugby by the way, it's the same for 
all the collision sports and, con- and contact sports, rugby league, NFL, NHL, Australian Football League, even football or, or soccer for those of you in the US, are having to answer the same kinds of questions about repeated head impacts and the later in life consequences. And this conference in Amsterdam stands to be potentially volatile. It's, a, it's an adversarial space made more so by the existence of these lawsuits. And there's a lot needs to be discussed around that, you know, the state of the science, the prevention strategies. And I'll talk to you a little bit about that in that third installment, as well as describing some of the research that is coming out of world rugby and other sports, mostly focused on the prevention and the management and the diagnosis of these, uh, first of all, concussions and then potentially later in life consequences. So that's what you can look forward to. This first episode, though, is an interview with Jess Hayden. She is a rugby writer at The Times, also a sub-editor at The Times, and came into rugby doing an MA, researching media coverage of women's rugby. And you won't find someone more informed, more passionate, more knowledgeable and curious about the sport, full stop. But in particular, women's rugby. And in fact, in this podcast, you'll hear at one point the roles are reversed and she starts asking me questions about the research and concussion, which I think is great because the science of concussion and all injuries in women is is really uh, challenging. There are some unique opportunities and considerations in women, and we get into a little bit of that, as well as marketing, the profile, the media coverage, and the state of the game. And so I think that you will find it valuable. Part two, incidentally, is an interview with Dr. Araba Chinto, who is a medical doctor, psychiatrist, a former Canadian international, and who heads up World Rugby's Women's Welfare Working Group. She's also on the World Rugby Scientific Committee. She's also on the World Rugby Concussion Working Group. And so she's got an interest in many different areas, and she'll share with you some thoughts on her playing career, where the sport is, and where it needs to go. So that's part two, but let's get straight into part one, which is is an interview with Jess Hayden, which I really hope that you'll enjoy. I certainly enjoyed doing it and chatting to her about this. And I think that you will find some interesting nuggets of information, which we will build on in installments two and three of this particular episode, uh, of the miniseries rather. So without further ado, here is Jess Hayden on the Women's Rugby World Cup. So Jess, I gather from listening to podcasts that you've been doing the rounds. I must say, I first heard you on my favorite rugby podcast, which is called Blood and Mud. And I thought I absolutely must get you onto this podcast to talk about women's rugby. And then the most recent Blood and Mud, they mentioned that you'd done about seven or eight in the week between your appearance there and this invitation. So suddenly struck me that everyone has obviously recognized the same thing. And so it is really an honor to have you on the podcast. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I, I felt quite underqualified to be here because I don't have a PhD, but I'm so grateful to be chatting to you. Yeah, it's been a very busy couple of weeks of the World Cup, but I'm just so pleased that we have all this interest in the tournament. This is always the busiest time for me when we have a major women's rugby tournament, but I've never seen demand quite like it is now. So while I'm very tired from having to do all these podcasts, I could not be more grateful for the opportunities because it's just great to be having these conversations on about women's rugby on, on big platforms. Yeah, tiredness no doubt compounded by the fact that you've been waking up two nights, two mornings a week at one o'clock in the morning. 
Absolutely. So I've kind of half shifted to being nocturnal. So I do wake up quite early to watch the the rugby, but then I tend to start work at 7am because I'm an editor on for the Times and the Sunday Times sports section. So I then have to kind of wake up at maybe 3am, have to decide, have to be quite selective about the games I watch live. And then I work all the way through to about three o'clock and then I just collapse into a pile of bones on a bed and I'm just falling asleep because it's just, it's a long day, but it's so lovely to to see the hype that I really can't complain about being tired. There'll be enough time to sleep when this tournament's over for sure. That is true. Just on your intro, you, you needn't feel underqualified because A, PhDs are overrated and B, you know considerably more about rugby than many listeners. And in fact, you know, it's, it's strange. Like I work in the sport and this podcast hasn't really covered rugby in the last three years, maybe one or two episodes. Um, so this is this is for many listeners the first time they're hearing about rugby. So I'm quite interested to explore your insights from what is now how many years worth of research, uh, not research, how many years worth of working in the space in, in rugby? So I started as, so I, I, I did kind of study rugby. My master's was in the representation of women's rugby in the British press. So my, it was in j- journalism, international journalism. But I kind of sort of have a research background in that sense, but not anything scientific. It was an MA. Um, but that was about six or seven years ago now. And then since then, I've been working as a freelance rugby journalist. And also I was... Uh, an editor at a trade, the trade body for self-employed people for a couple of years. And then I joined the Times only two years ago as a full-time sports sub-editor and r- rugby journalist. I'd say I've been covering the women's game professionally for about, in the nas- in a national sense, probably started on nationals about four, four or five years mm. ago. So I'm still very young in my career in terms of rugby journalism and stuff like that. But yeah, it's been it's been a, a very interesting four or five years anyway with all the growth that we've had in the sport. So covering it, researched it for that uh, MA, that you, MS, MA that you did, and then you played it as well, I gather. And we'll get on to a little bit on your own playing experience, but you, you had a rugby playing career that took you to the sport in the first place. Exactly that, yeah. So I studied politics at university and, and as an undergraduate degree. And while I was studying that, I started playing uh, rugby. I was at Swansea University in Wales. And the head of rugby there was Shuan Lillicrap, the Wales captain. And I got the chance to play alongside people like Cara Hope, who's a Wales hooker, Courtney Keat, Wales centre, um, Natalia John, who's, these are all Wales players, I should say. And really just watching them inspired me and actually my first piece of published work in a national paper was about the sacrifices that women make to play in the six nations and that was back in i want to say 2016 really focusing on the how they had to pay for their own medical insurance and they have to fundraise if they needed surgery and stuff like that and looking at really the what was that what was there to be achieved and especially looking at England who at the time had some professionalism their full professionalism came came in in 2018 but they had some professionalism coming in kind of after the 2014 on the run-up to the 2014 World Cup and a bit afterwards so I was kind of looking at that and what could we achieve in women's rugby and I revisited that piece this week and we're just a world away from from that and what that Mm. 
had, what we had back then was an almost entirely amateur women's rugby landscape. And now we have varying levels of professionalism and semi-professionalism. So it's been a, a very interesting um, career so far. Yeah, you, you're, you're a witness to, it's not the birth so much as the um, fast changing adolescent years of women's rugby, I'd say, where, where things are changing monthly. Not always positively, but I think uh, when you look at the World Cup, you must you must look at this one right now and think back to 2017 when the when the previous one and you co- you would have covered that I'm sure, and you must look at the differences and just go like this is an unrecognizable sport and it's wonderful. It is almost entirely unrecognizable. the The level of the rugby we're seeing on the pitch is vastly improved at this World Cup and I think a lot of that is the work of the Premier 15s which is the highest level of domestic rugby in England but it has players from all over the world playing in it every week and I think having that regular domestic very high level rugby has improved the test level enormously so on the pitch the product is much better much more exciting and more skillful and off the pitch the differences are probably bigger there it, you know, seeing stadiums full, 35,000 people or so watching the opening day of, of rugby at Eden Park at this World Cup, looking at kind of what the RFU are, are promising about having a standalone fixture for England women versus France in mm. the Six Nations next year. There have been lots of things happening in the last month that make me think we are so far away from where we were then. And then when we look forward to 2025, the next World Cup, which is, of course, only in three years because this World Cup was delayed a year because of COVID, the growth that we could have by then, again, there's huge potential there. And what I'm hoping for, and I think is a reasonable prediction, is that that could be, if not fully professional, I think every single team there will have some level of professionalism, whether that's semi-pro, paid for the tournament or, or fully professional like England and Wales. I think there will be at least every, no one there will be amateur, I think. Yeah, I agree. That seems to me to be the next iteration. The And then with that, with that come a whole host of things that could become challenges, like how do you get young girls into the sport when perhaps in many countries, and I can't speak for others, I would like to hear your views on them. I can only speak for South African perspectives here, but like rugby is not offered at schools here in South Africa for girls. And so, yeah, and I mean, okay, I was going to get into this later, but here's a good opportunity. We were in such a situation three or four years ago that they actually, actually launched a reality TV show in the same mold of Idols and uh, Britain's Got Talent to try and find women rugby players. And they had to play sevens. And so they would ha- it was actually serious. You can find it on YouTube. It's called uh, Becoming Mboko uh, let me just check on the pronunciation or the spelling of that. Otherwise, I'm going to send you down the wrong path. But that was the situation we were in. We 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 struggled so much to find good athletes with physical literacy who can then develop into rugby players. And so when I see us, for instance, at the last weekend losing so narrowly to Fiji, while while mm. it's heartbreaking, I also understand the the curve for our women is so steep because five years ago we were we were just hoping to put a team on the field and. Now we have a competitive team, certainly not at the level of the, the Six Nations and the New Zealand's, Canada's, North America, but it's getting there. So it's called Becoming Imbokodo. That's I-M-B-O-K-O-D-O. 
Have you got that? Well, I yeah. would love to watch that. I'm going to have a look because I've, I've only been to South Africa once and that was back in 2013, I want to say. And I went to a school just outside of Durban and I can't remember the name of it, but it was a, it was a private school that was very, it felt very posh to me. Mm. But then I saw other schools there and they all felt incredibly posh to me because I went to a, a state school here in England that was a world away from the schools that I saw over there. Um, but it was amazing to see the rugby there and the level of schoolboy rugby was incredible really competitive mm. and decent rugby with stands full of fans watching, but I didn't see any women's rugby there. But at the time I wasn't playing and I wasn't that interested in women's rugby. So that's really interesting. That you're struggling with kind of the school girl or, or young, getting young girls into to rugby, but you're right. I think because the, the team now, the South Africa team, are professional, you've got an incredible, you've got incredible coaching staff there in South Africa, including Lynn Cantwell. Mm. And I think that that will, you know, it trickles down that. And I, I think, especially we've seen it in England, their, the professionalism in England has been multifaceted and it's not just the, 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 30 contracts or so they give out it's having a semi-professional domestic league premier 15s and it does drip down then into the lower leagues and then of course you've got the grassroots game which does is doing very well in england for example mm. it's one of the uh, one of the only growth sports that england has at the moment it, there are more and more hmm. women and girls joining rugby every year so it's interesting about how long it will take for that to happen in other countries. And yes. I do think the countries that we're seeing with professionalism now, we will see the effects in the grassroots game quicker. Yeah, I think so. I think they can capitalise on the institutional wisdom, not only from men's rugby, but from other sports that have done it. Here in South Africa, and this is, and again, very essay-centric, I remember doing an analysis of Commonwealth Games performances and over about three Commonwealth game cycles, we were by far the worst performing women's nation relative to men. So if you look at the, the, the countries that win 10 or more medals at the Commonwealth Games and you look at the ratio of medals won by men to women, we are so far behind other countries. Women's sport in general in this country has been left behind. And so the authorities, and this is true of football, cricket and rugby, they're working against five generations of neglect <laughs> And trying to develop yeah. a, a population. And you know what the problem is, is that if, if you're not physically active at the age of 11, 12, 13, 14, then there's no foundation on which you then build rugby competency at 16, 17, 18. So, you know, Lynn Cantwell's come over here from Ireland and, and they really are committed to it and they're doing a good job. But it's a it's a very difficult job in South Africa. And, and on that then, let's, let's leave South Africa for a moment. What, what is the situation like in the, in the home unions? England clearly have got first mover advantage in the space. You mentioned Wales earlier. Ireland didn't qualify for the World Cup and have had certain issues. Uh, Scotland and, and I guess then that leaves what Italy and, and France, I guess, as the Six Nations. Where, where are they relative to England? Okay, so England are fully professional. They have around 30 women who are on full-time contracts. And then they also have what are called EPS agreements, elite player squad agreements. And that's for players who are basically part-time professionals. So they might study or have jobs outside of rugby. So that's the situation in England. It's incredibly professional and it's kind of the, the gold standard for mm. what other countries are aiming towards. Yeah. Wales brought in, I want, I think it was 12 contracts in January this year. Yeah. And then 
before the World Cup, they brought in more. So I think they currently have a squad of around 20 professional players in Wales. And again, they do have players who are on elite player squad agreements, or they're not called that, but they're exactly the same thing, kind of these part-time deals. And that lets them play in the tournaments and, and come into training camps and they're, they're paid for that. They also have players that are just paid match fees, but essentially now the deal in Wales is that you will be paid to play for your country, even if that's just a match fee, which is miles away from what we had even last year. And, and it came about just quickly by activism by the players, especially, especially Jasmine Joyce, who's a winger for Wales, very fast, quite famous. And she really caught the attention of loads of uh, rugby fans after this uh, the Sevens World, the Sevens Olympics, sorry. 2016, and, I think it was, right? Sorry? It was 2016 Olympics, was it? Or was it the 2020 Games? No, the, the 2020 the to- Olympics. Tokyo. She caught okay. the attention of lots of people and she then spoke afterwards about, well, now I'm going to have to go back to my full-time job, which was as a personal trainer. And it caught the attention of a lot of people. People were tagging Wales and all of that. And Nigel Walker, the performance director at the World Rugby Union, spoke with Jazz and made sure that change would happen. And that's kind of how change always has to happen in women's rugby. So I just yeah. wanted to mention that. In Ireland, there are varying, they, they are paid match fees to play and their expenses are covered. So it's quite a low level of, um, on the lower end of what we would call like semi-professionalism. In Scotland, they're quite guarded about their contracts, but we do know that the ambition is to be a fully professional side and they have varying levels of professionalism within the squads. There are some central contracts in Scotland. France have central contracts as well. And most of their squad is on some form of semi-professional deal. In France, there's a caveat that you have to be working or studying alongside playing rugby. So they don't really want people to be full-time focused on rugby, but that's kind of to support the women outside of the game. And they and the, the French mm. Rugby Union do support the women in that way. Italy have, again, I think they're... The, they're the the I say Ireland and Italy are neck on neck on who's most amateur, um, but again it's quite guarded about their specific contracts. But I believe that their pay kind of expenses are covered and they're able to play in the tournaments like the Six Nations and um, but most of them have full time jobs as well. So that's kind of like the Six Nations covered, and then obviously South Africa professional squad now, New Zealand a professional. The USA are really struggling at the moment um, to get the game time together and get the investment from the union. But yeah, they have some they have um, some level of professionalization professionalism within their squad. It's really difficult though because I think this professionalism is often spoken about just in terms of the money players receive, and that varies hugely as well. I should add the difference between what England are paid compared to other nations is vast, but. What's more important to me is building sustainable growth and making sure that the game as a whole is healthy. Mm. And to me, that means stuff like, as I've said, domestic league, player pathways and proper care for the players and access to facilities. And even if we don't see contracts coming in, what we are seeing is players having better access to those kind of deals that, that help them become better players. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. So you say England's got 30 um, contracted players within the England squad. They've got a, the AP-15s is certainly the most well-established 
professional and semi-professional league, there are obviously hundreds of players there. Will those players be on match fees to play for their clubs below England level? It's mixed. So some players do. So Saracens and Harlequins, for example, they have they do pay players. Uh, same kind of Bristol Bears, Gloucester Hartbury. A lot of these clubs do have some money for players, but most of them, the majority of them, don't get paid to to play properly. They're not on it on contracts. Um, some offer match fees. Some don't at all. Some players don't get anything, even expenses really covered. Um, the lowest team in the league, DMP Durham Sharks, the players have reported claiming expenses that were never paid mm. and stuff like that. So there's still a huge disparity between the top and the bottom, even in that top tier of women's rugby in England. So mm. it's still a very mixed bag, but the Premier 15s have the ambition, for, or the RFU, I should say, have the ambition for that league to be a fully professional league in the years to come. And they're working with the Premiership, the men's Premiership, to create... Um, a league that that makes money is profitable and can afford to pay their players. Mm. But of course, you know, the Gallagher Premiership isn't doing too well at the moment, health wise. Anyways, it's a difficult time for rugby in England. Anyway. Yes, indeed. If you were in charge, and and it was up to you to draw up a list of priorities, what are the three things that need to happen next to capitalise on the success of twenty twenty one? well, two World Cup going into, and the 2025 World Cup is an England-hosted event, right? So there's, Yeah, that's right. So so, so really all the elements are in place to capitalise enormously on the success. What needs to happen in order for that to, to come to fruition? Well, that's a very good question. And I would say my number one priority would be creating more test matches between nations below the Six Nations. Mm. And I say below, not meaning that the Six Nations is like tier one, because it's not, um, but just because we don't see much rugby, international women's rugby outside of that. And I think we need to be able to see that as well. It needs to be visible and accessible. We should watch it. We should be able to watch New Zealand, Australia, South Africa on telly and over here. And we we can't, for example, in Europe, it's very difficult to, to watch Southern Hemisphere rugby. So I'd really like that. I'd like to see more. We will see that with um, the new international structure that's coming into play. We will see more te- international test matches. That, of course, means more investment from unions because it costs a lot to send your team there. But yeah, n- number one priority would be regular test matches between nations not just the six nations Mm. i think my second priority would have to be on the let me think i think player safety is always something that i'm really keen to but it would have to be one of my priorities and in women's rugby in particular you know we've had conversations about this in in the past russ about the the concussion protocols in women's rugby mm-hmm. perhaps falling behind. There's been talk from the World Rugby Deputy Chief Medical Officer saying that the men could learn from the women in terms of tackle height. I'm not sure if I agree with that. I think that we could still learn a lot about diagnosing diagnosing head injuries in women's rugby uh, and brain injuries, I should say. So that's a, that's a priority for me. And also I think that I, if I was in charge, I'd want to research the ACL curse, which seems to happen in, in women's rugby. And I know it's a problem in men's rugby. We see Dan Bigger at the moment is out of the men's well squad with knee injuries. But I was speaking to a, a, a physiotherapist recently who works on researching women's health and was talking about how the menstrual cycle affects 
women's bodies and how you know you could be more likely to tear a muscle in certain phases of your period etc I'd be really interested in that kind of research and that's something that I'd be really keen because injuries have blighted large parts of this championship and we can see Law Sanzu's France's best player has had to, has been forced to retire early because of a, an injury mm. and Alicia Butcher's Wales's best player I would argue has had to leave the tournament with a knee injury Sadi Kabea, one of England's best players, has had, is, was injured for the last match because of a knee injury. I think that there's a lot to be said about that kind of research that focuses on women's bodies as a difference to, uh, different to men. Yeah. And I think my third priority would be off the pitch, looking at the marketing side of women's rugby. And I think England do it very well in terms of the players stay after matches and talk to fans. They, they're constantly signing things. We've had three documentaries about women's rugby this autumn. We've had the Wales one in camp, England's one and New Zealand. We had behind the scenes documentaries there. I'd be looking at building or growth in that way as well, marketing it well. The way that the Euros did in in England in the football, so the women's football team, England's women's football team won the Euros at Wembley. It was a huge event. The whole nation really got behind it. That's the kind of target i'd be looking for for the 2025 world cup mm. it's a very mixed bag there because i didn't know you're going to ask me that and i don't know if that's a if i rambled too much there because that was that's no, no. me on the spot but i think if i was in charge that's the three things that i'd want to focus on before 2025 no they sound sensible and if i was if i was a union or world rugby i would i would imagine and in fact i can testify that at least one of those is a priority and that's the safety ones and i do, I do want to go back yeah. there because obviously that's me playing on solid ground myself and it is fascinating <laughs> the, the the woman's injury picture is one of the most interesting and it's you know it's think about this a lot it's it's exciting that we're going to have so much more women's rugby because of the data that will come out but it's it's not a nice well i'd rather not have injuries to study but they're going yeah. to be there and one of the one of the things that has been true for the last decade or so is that for every one women's injury we literally have 30 men's injuries just because of the volume of the men's game you know i was looking back at a paper that i'd published probably 2 years ago now we, as you would know, we do baseline assessments every year in players before they start the season. And those baselines then inform concussion diagnoses during the season. And at that time, we have a database of men's and women's baselines. The men's data set had 13,000 baselines. The women's had fewer than 800. That's the difference in the scale. But what's exciting is that in three years' time, we will have the same size cohort for women, or at least 6,000, yeah. let's say. And similarly with injuries, I mean, you know, this World Cup, what's it? It's it's a 30-odd matches, 25, 26 matches. Yeah. Um, and the AP15s gives us 120 matches a year. In the men's game, there are 700 matches a year that you have a possibility of studying injury. And so as women play more and there's more scrutiny medically on these injuries – we will be able to answer many of those questions that you've that you've brought up there. The, you'll be relieved to know there's a, there's a, World Rugby has a women's welfare working group. Um, I interviewed Dr. Araba Chinto, who's the chairperson of that group. That podcast will come out soon, also. And we've we've come up with a list of six priorities for player welfare research in the women's game: concussions at the top, and the menstrual function and injuries is also in the top three. So we're committed to doing it. It's just there's never been. There's never been a cohort to do it on, and now there is, which is wonderful. 
That's amazing. And I can't wait to see what you find out because I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. And I got to have very weirdly just what how these coincidences work. Um when I was when I was studying at Swansea University, it was when Dr. Elizabeth Jones there. Sorry, is it Jones? Williams, right? Elizabeth. William, sorry. Yeah. Yep. Was, yeah. Um, yeah. So weird coincidence. I was studying at Swansea University when Dr. Liz Williams was looking at concussion in women's rugby for the first time, and obviously I was playing rugby as well. And the the players were fitted with mouth guards. I wasn't, um, and they were fitted with mouth guards that tested there. As you know, you know these mouth guards so well. But just for any listeners that don't that track the speed and of impact and all of that those kind of things and you could see the data in real time about the collisions and I remember uh, Liz telling me that the impact was so much greater than she had feared in women's rugby players and she was so shocked at the differences between the men's rugby team and the women's rugby team at Swansea University which is a one of the best rugby universities in the UK and that was fascinating to me mm. that she had found that she was personally shocked and she said she went back to her lab and thought this must be a mistake these that these results must be wrong they, the impacts can't be that hard and they were correct and she backed it up and her research is, is fascinating to me so yeah I think that I've always had a very close interest in in that kind of data and obviously anything to do with the menstrual cycle and how that affects our bodies is interesting to all women whether you play sport or not mm. to know that in one phase of your cycle you might be more likely to have an injury or you, you shouldn't lift as heavy weights on on this day etc that that impacts us all out of interest just that, sorry, or not. i was just going to add to that out of interest there is some research that suggests that even concussion is more likely at different stages of the cycle and particularly the severity might be worse in the luteal phase and one of the reasons that and this hasn't been studied but again we will we will be able to do this work in a way that i think no other sport can because of the volume of players and the number of head injuries that happen which again is not a nice situation to be in but we can turn at least we can turn these lemons into lemonade as it were but what happens is when you get a, a brain injury the progesterone levels drop and so if that injury happens in the luteal phase that drop is relatively larger because that's when the progesterone levels are higher so there's a theory that maybe the time of the the, the cycle affects the concussion outcomes and who knows if, if that turns out to be true then it offers a a, a clinical action where you have to manage a concussed player differently depending on that. It's the same thing with the ACLs. So that's one option we have to look into. I'm really interested in that. So if the drop in your progesterone is bigger, what's the symptom that well, you the, would kind of show? Well, the theory is that that drop is then responsible for delaying recovery from the concussion. So the, the, and there is quite a lot of research on this. It's, this is, probably fairly well established now is that women take longer to recover from concussions yeah. the, the symptoms persist for longer i saw one study in football average time to return was 29 days in women 22 in men so it's a week's difference over three weeks which is not insignificant um and no one understands why that is the, the menstrual cycle might be one of a handful of different reasons for it there there may also be neurological issues the axons are slightly thinner and so on um mm. the other there's also a social phenomenon that they always mention in these papers you've probably seen this where women are more likely to report symptoms that could be related yeah. to so it might be that men under report and women actually give you a, a truer picture we don't know you see so th these are all theories that are i would describe at best as um 
speculative. And well, I'd be very yeah. interested to see that research. Indeed. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. E even the incidence of concussion, you know, like we, we've studied concussion now in the Sevens World Series in, and in the Women's World Cups, and it's not higher in women than in men overall. So per thousand hours or per hundred hours of match play, the rate of concussion in men and women is about the same. But what's interesting is that Women in women, the concussions make up a higher percentage of the injuries than in men. So the overall risk is slightly lower for women, but the concussions are the yeah. same. So it could be that there's a susceptibility to concussion despite a lower overall risk. Does that make sense? Yeah, so there's some nuance in that. People often, you'll see the media say, women are more likely to be concussed. Th that's not as simple as just that statement. It, it's They're actually as likely to be concussed, but maybe more susceptible given to a given head load. And the mouth guard, the mouth guard research is, you know, that Liz was one of the first people to use it four or five years ago. The technology's now come on quite a long way, and we funded over the last two years two big studies. One was in New Zealand in the community game, boys, girls, and adults, and then another one was in the elite game in Europe. And within the next three months, the data will start coming out to compare men to women and show exactly what those headloads are. So there's a, and, and now in this Women's World Cup and next season in the AP 15s, the same things. All the teams have been given these mouth guards. They're all part mm -hmm. of this research study. Whenever a player registers a significant acceleration on the mouth guard, we're going to be collecting saliva to study how certain markers maybe change with concussion, clinical assessments. So, so I mean, it's 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 like it's like when the world went from snowy black and white TVs to high definition, but like happening in one year. That's that's what the research space feels like at the moment around women's rugby. So it really is exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and would you with those um, gum shields? How will you will you be involved at all, or how will they work kind of in the real time? Because I've heard that in the Premiership, for example, that the the Gallagher Premiership, I should say, the, the English Premiership, that the doctors on the sidelines will be able to pull players off the pitch if they notice something. They'll, they will have real-time data. I mean, I just wonder from... Sorry, I know this is your podcast. I'm asking you a question, but I'm just no, so interested and please have the opportunity to do this. The journalist, the journalist <laughs> um, in you can't well, be contained. It's, it's fine. Um, <laughs> so uh, well, no, I'm just so interested. Um how does that affect your research if a player is concussed and they, or there's a suspicion that they're concussed or have had some form of brain injury and they're pulled off the pitch? Yeah. So, so at this moment in time, today on the 18th of October, 2022, there is no known threshold for head acceleration at which we can mm. say confidently that'll be a concussion. Sometimes yeah. you will, sometimes you will measure a head acceleration, say at, 42 Gs or rotational at 1,500 and the player will be concussed. Other times it'll be 68 Gs and 6,100 and the player will not show any symptoms or sign of concussion. So unfortunately, like most things in life, it's not as clean as if you exceed value X and value Y, you're concussed, come off the field. But over time, once we get 200 examples of a brain injury or concussion in men and women, we'll be able to say with 80% confidence that impact was severe enough to cause a linear and a rotational acceleration that exceed our red flag territory. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll divide, and this is, this is me blue skying it now. We're nowhere near this yet, right? But maybe we'll divide impacts into green, orange, and red, or green, yellow, red, and red 
cases, it will become part of the diagnostic set of criteria that gets looked at. I don't think it ever takes over from the symptoms the player endorses, cognitive function, balance, and so forth, but it might become part of that picture. You know, it's more information, more more data to make that decision. The other the other problem with it at the moment is that there's it's it's astonishing to me how much work has to go into taking that signal at the moment it happens and turning it into something meaningful afterwards. And so at this point, there's a lot of filtering and processing because what happens if the player bites on their mouth guard? Now you get a mm-hmm. you get a head injury spike that's or, or an acceleration spike that's way beyond anything. A lot of times players take the mouth guards out and they chew it. That causes yeah. that causes a reading to be registered. So there's a lot that has to go into filtering and processing the signal before it's meaningful enough. And I think a lot of the research actually in the space up to this point has not done that very well. And so the biomechanists and the engineers, this is their domain, but they've they've kind of come on board and it's taken a long time to get to the point where we think now you can trust the measure. It's just it's it's only available to you like the day after or hours after anyway the incident has happened. Do you, would it be do you want it to be kind of more preventative like could you imagine it could you well I guess that's a, a leading question. Could you ever imagine a time where we might be able to have that that doctors can be seeing data live that's reliable and they they might be able to say well that's a red flag okay well actually we weren't considering a hia maybe we should have a hia or, or anything like that so again that's that's going to be a, another one for the future i don't know whether that's two years i mean could be one year who knows the, the pace at which we're working on this is is fast enough it might be within the next couple of years maybe it's five years maybe it's 10 years but i think there's two things that you would want to get from mouth guards number one is exactly as you say it becomes part of the the set of information that is available to the doctor when they do that assessment uh you know that assessment at the moment consists of the symptom checklist video review balance tests, cognitive tests, and clinical signs. And then based on that, they make a decision. You either leave the field or you or you go back to play. With the addition of head in, in injury or head acceleration rather from mouth guards, it might be that it becomes a tiebreaker or it becomes a criteria to assess a player, not necessarily to rule them out. You know, So there's different ways it might be used. Much will depend on how clearly you can identify a clinical outcome based on the mouth guard data. As I said, sometimes 42 Gs causes a concussion, sometimes 65 does not. But maybe we'll get to a point where we can say with 91% confidence, if you exceed 60, you're going to have some clinical outcome and then you need to, and then, and then you could actually say, you know, that's, that's better than balance. You know, because, mm. I mean, you, you've, you've had a concussion yourself. It would be interesting to hear your own experiences of it. But symptoms are by far the most sensitive and accurate way to identify them so you you do rely as a doctor on the player telling you i'm nauseous i've got a headache i'm dizzy whatever it is but then you've got the others like balance and cognitive function memory recall that sort of stuff those those aren't perfect guides to it mouth guards could enter at that level and start to make the decision a little bit more uh, robust and accurate and then that's really interesting yeah, and then so Sorry, the go- second the second way that I think it would be useful to use is in training. You know that there's been a lot of talk in the last few years about managing load through training, because obviously mm-hmm. matches are going to expose players to certain risks. It's to its to an extent uncontrollable, whereas a training environment is highly controllable. So 
there's a possibility that mouth guards become like uh, GPS did. Listeners may know, when, when GPS became available, players wore them in training and coaches would say, right, this player's done 2,000 meters of running and 16 sprints, that's enough, he's done. Where someone else hasn't done as much, he's got to go uh, for more sprints at the end of the session with the S&C guy. Mouth guards offer the same potential, but in the other direction to say, okay, actually, we need to be a bit cautious here because we've now created a cumulative head load that exceeds what we deem to be acceptable. And that's the kind of utility that I think it might eventually have. But at this moment, we're, we're just kind of drawing the map, you know, just trying to figure out where all the landmarks are. <laughs> and then at some point in the future, we'll create the directions. That's so interesting. Thank you for answering my questions, even though this is your podcast. No, um, that's, that, that's good. That's, that's really interesting stuff. And that's what I would love in an ideal world, just as kind of a, a rugby journalist, but as a fan as well, is to be able to use it to pre- prevent brain injuries. That's mm. the, I mean, that's what we all want, isn't it? Yeah, but, yeah exactly. I mean, everyone's working towards that same goal. And what's what's happened in the last few years, and you've probably been covering it, is you know, there was a focus on concussion. Now it's a focus on all the cumulative injuries that don't necessarily cause a concussion, but might add up over time. And so the yeah. mouth guards, the mouth guards give us the opportunity to understand that. And so it, it, it really is a, the most exciting thing we've had. It's a tool that allows us to do things that two, three years ago we couldn't do. For example, mm-hmm. um, you know, I did this video analysis in the men's game showing like, when is a player most likely to suffer a head injury? What are the circumstances around which it happens? And that's where the stuff came about an upright player is more likely to get injured than a bend player. Um, front on tackles, the speed, obviously. Some of these things are intuitive, some less so. Um, the same is true, by the way, in women. Upright tacklers, uh, 70% more likely injured than a bent player. If If the head of a tackler, this is in the women's game, like very recent data, if the head of the tackler is near the sternum or above of the ball carrier, the risk of a head injury is five times higher than if it's below. So there's a technique message that needs to be sent out around that. And the mouth guards will allow us to measure whether it's working. At the moment, we've got no idea. Uh, if we change law, how does it change mouth guard head acceleration data? You know, So we can, we can start to do things with a bit more precision than simply... Yeah issue red cards and let's hope for the best <laughs> which is kind of yeah. in hindsight where we've been coming from so yeah well that's fascinating and i really hope you're right that this is where the game's headed and as you said a little bit earlier that this could be two years five years ten years down the line mm. but the acceleration we've we've had in just four years has been huge so to think that potentially in five or ten years time we could be at a point where we're able to use that data to help change laws or prevent brain injury Mm. is exciting for me, especially at a time when brain injury in in rugby is is so prominent in the news cycle and not just in sport, but Mm. around the world really for for so many very sad reasons. And and with with players with dementia and early onset dementia, I think that's, and CT, probable CT as well. I think that this is a, this is coming at exactly the right time, isn't it? And let's just hope that we're in a position in 10 years time where we don't have, where, where there's hope for the future of the game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and there's a lot of animosity and adversarial debate around this. You'd have seen it in 
but I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident that most people in the sport who run it and are influential and have the ability to change these things are very well-intentioned and well-meaning. It's just a question, I think, sometimes of how do we titrate the response, you know? Because on one end, you could say ban tackling, which some people have yeah. said. Now, ba banning tackling is banning rugby because there are forms of rugby that have no tackle, so they already exist. So if you ban tackling from rugby, it's gone. Rugby's gone as we know it, and you can play yeah. other forms. So you don't want to do that, but you don't want to do nothing. So the, I suppose it's like a question of calibrating the response right. Now, so, so as, a, as a journalist in the space, like how, what do you say to people who say you're defending the sport, which is causing all these problems, and people assume that it is, um, sometimes bluntly and sometimes wrongly. How do you go about justifying to yourself your, your um, defense of rugby? Well, I guess a lot of my work has been looking into concussion. It's something that I'm very passionate about because I had um, a, quite a bad brain injury as a player. So it's something that I've always wanted to to look at and chat to to researchers about. So I guess in I kind of defend my professionally. I defend myself in mm. the sense that I want to get to the bottom of this, and I know that there are good people working in rugby who want to make it a safer sport. And there's no one that I've met in rugby who wants to see players have probable CT and dementia. You know, it's a, it's a horrible consequence of the sport. You're right that touch and tag rugby exist already, and they're not that successful, and they're not big sports. Tackling is a crucial part of the game. So my defence of rugby really is that there are many good things about the sport. Mm. As you know, it's a, it's a brilliant sport and there's lots of work being done to make it safer. And I think knowing about these things is only a good thing. That's We are getting to the point the conversation is open. There are people openly talking about their experiences. <laughs> Potentially, there might there will be an impact on the number of players that play at a grassroots level globally. I think when with these cases coming out, and especially as we wait for this l impending lawsuit about against World Rugby, the RFU, and the Welsh Rugby Union with former players who have, have been diagnosed with um, on the early onset dementia and probable CTE. So I think it's just it's just about it personally covering the game in the with the in light of the research into concussion and following that closely to make sure that what we're reporting is accurate. And as you say, I know you're absolutely right that the media in general tend to kind of exaggerate these and he write headlines about, you know, women more like speaking caste, et cetera. Um, and I completely accept that as a very fair point, <laughs> very justified point. And so I, I personally, I try to, I go to the kind of concussion reporting seminars and stuff like that to make sure that, the way we report it, and I, I edit as well, so how I edit my colleagues as well who write about concussion, to make sure that we're reporting it in a fair and professional, in a professional capacity, because these things are very personal. And when you speak to former players and they they tell you things, you know, it's about fact-checking that and making sure they understand what their diagnosis is and what they've been told and making sure that that is clinically sound as well. So. There are many ways that you can kind of defend the sport as a whole, um, but I think, yeah, most of it for me is about just making sure that we are reporting what's happening and the good work that, that is around there. Yeah, and then transparency. I mean, I spoke 
all the time about transparency in the context of anti-doping. You know, it's like the biggest thing that undermines trust in that space is lack of it. And I think it, the same would eventually be true here. It was true in the NFL when they weren't open with players about the risks. And I, I'd like to think that rugby hasn't made those same mistakes. There's certainly never been a cover-up of any kind. Again, people will argue against that, I suppose. But if we can move forward, and especially now that we've got tools like these mouth guards, and be open and say, this is what the picture shows us. This is what we're doing to try and reduce it. This is what we do when we have cases that happen, because obviously the players need care at some point after, and, and during, actually. You know, guys can cuss. Like, who, who looks after them? Is the standard of care for that the way that it should be? So there's lots of things you can try and assure people of, and then in the end, people will make those decisions. It's, it seems quite clear to me, and you alluded to it, is people love the tackle element and the physicality of yeah. the sport. You know, it's, and, and these calls to ban tackling are made by people, I think, who haven't quite appreciated that that's actually the, that's actually the draw. So, that's, my, that's a big part of the sport, yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of law change, and I didn't want to let you go before we touched on this because it came up in your in your podcast I alluded to with Blood and Mud, and I thought it was really fascinating, is women play currently with the same size ball as the men do. And there has yeah. been a discussion for a long time, actually, about decreasing the size of the ball so that it's in proportion to the size of the hands of the players. Now, on this podcast a few months back, listeners will know, a paper was published by some Norwegian scientists looking at this argument for football. And they were basically saying that if, if you could imagine a third race, a third, um, it was list, they, I think they called it aliens came to Earth. So you'd have male, female, and aliens. And aliens were 20% bigger and faster and stronger than males were. Those aliens would have to play with a ball the size of a basketball for it to be the same proportion as males. And so they were making the opposite case in order to make this the case for women playing with a smaller ball how do you feel about smaller ball in women in rugby so it's a really interesting debate and my viewpoint has definitely changed in the last year i would say because before i was very much in the camp of women should play the exact same game as men because that's what happens in, in football and it's the best way to show that women are very good at this sport and it's interesting, it's entertaining, all of that. But as we've seen in this World Cup, but I mean more at a domestic level, we see a lot of knock-ons, which means more scrum time and it's not entertaining for fans, I don't think, to watch scrum after scrum and knock-ons and stuff like that. Even Emily Scarrett, who is one of the best players in the world, had a very costly knock-on against France. And knock-ons happen in the men's game. I'm not saying they're not, but they, ha they happen at a higher rate in the women's game. Do, yeah. And I think a lot of that is because they can't hold the ball in one hand, gather the ball in one hand. And this isn't a generalisation for all women. I'm sure there are many women who have hands that are bigger than the average man and, and can pick up balls with one hand. But I certainly can't. And I'm not a small person. I'm five foot eight or nine, I'm a big girl, like I've got, but my hands are quite small. So I can't pick up a ball with one hand. And it is a disadvantage. You know, if I see the ball at the bottom of a, a ruck or something, I can't I cannot pick it up with one hand. I have to kind of either roll it against my own foot to pick it up or use two hands. So there is definitely, I think, room for a trial in I would say the Premier 15's cup is a really good way place to put it. So the cup kind of runs during the international periods uh the so ap15s teams 
still play, but they're, they're without their internationals. And I think that would be a really good place to trial it because you still have very high level women's rugby players there. Yeah. To see if it makes a difference and to see if there are fewer scrums, which obviously would then potentially be better for mm-hmm. um, to reduce injuries that happen in the scrum, for example, neck injuries and head injuries. And also to see if it, just in general, it makes the game a bit more entertaining and a, and a bit better. Yeah. That, that's what I want. So I'm, I've definitely moved on from being completely against it. Let's all play the same game to, well, I don't think it hurts to trial this. And I don't think it hurts to accept that it is potentially a downside of the female body is that our hands are a bit smaller, but that yeah. doesn't mean that the game will be less entertaining or less respected if the ball's smaller. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you 100%. And in fact, we did walk down this path a few years back. Um, it was proposed to study a ball that was half a size smaller. And it, the trial got interrupted first by COVID, then they decided that they didn't want to do a trial like this in the year leading up to a World Cup. Then the World Cup got delayed by year because of COVID version yeah. 6.0 or whatever it was. And so then it got delayed again because we didn't want to try it. So it actually, COVID cost a, caused a three-year delay in this. And I'm not sure what the appetite is to to go back to it. But at the time that it was proposed, there was a discussion among delegates representing different competitions around the world. And I'm not exaggerating, so it was probably 50-50 split. They did not want, 50% did not want this trial because the perception, I think, was the same as you raised, is that, you know, it's it's rugby. It's the same game. We use the same equipment. Same field. Everything's the same. The other 50 were saying, actually, no, we, we, can, we can improve the spectacle by having a slightly smaller ball because it's not just passing and catching, actually. The, the early data from that trial showed that the ability to kick was much better. Now, <laughs> you could argue whether that's a good thing or not if they start kicking more because you can kick it further you know for kicks for touch were 15 20 meters uh, sorry 5 10 meters better with a smaller ball than a larger one lineouts for instance the overwhelming proportion of lineouts with a bigger ball were going to the front of the lineout because it's safer giving them the smaller yeah. ball and they go to the back more often so then you get ball off the top at the back and you get potentially open game off the off the line so that i didn't think that was one i was like oh well actually yes that's obvious didn't think of that at first the speed of the well, no, pass, yeah. The speed of the pass would be better as well. The ability to offload because you can now hold it in one hand and pop pass and find line breaks as a consequence would would potentially improve. So there's many many reasons I think you would want to do it, and I, I hope that we can. In fact, I'm going to go back and say, what about this AP15s Cup? Because that that probably didn't exist four years ago, right? No, it didn't. It, it began last season. So, so we were only in the second season, season of it. So yeah, I think that's the perfect place to trial it. And I'm, we absolutely agree on this. I'm so pleased that you mentioned the lineup because that hadn't occurred to me. Mm. But of course, offloading, yeah. When I see players offloading with one hand in the women's or men's game, I look at them and just think, how? Because I physically cannot hold the rugby ball upside down in one hand, yet alone have a grip on it and have control mm. over it. Um, and also with scoring tries, you know where players kind of put the ball down with one hand? I cannot do that. Yeah. And I yeah. know many women cannot do that. So again, it's these kind of things that maybe aren't that obvious, but would make the game a better spectacle. And I think that, yeah, the trial sounds fantastic. And I look forward to, hopefully, oh. if you do go back on that, and that does happen. I'll be very interested because I'd, I'd love that to come in. Maybe it's a grassroots thing as well, actually, as well. Just thinking out loud that the grassroots level, there's less risk 
the cup is kind of inconsequential anyway because it's it's a much lower tournament it's not televised this this season hasn't been televised etc etc so there is definitely room i think to put it there but at the grassroots level there's even less risk and the rewards might be greater because the rugby's more exciting to play there are fewer scrums and scrums are no fun at the grassroots level at all because of the skill level um, God, I mean, I would argue. That sounds brilliant. I, I would argue that in. I mean, it, it's already the case that kids play with a smaller ball. I mean, I would argue that it could be even smaller because the more you can develop those skills, the less attritional the game becomes. Exactly. So I exactly. would think that there's many, many reasons to do it, not just in women, but in in young men and boys, but for sure women. And I'm gonna. I mean, I, I'm not gonna say I'm gonna go and do it, but I'm certainly gonna raise it again and see if we can revive it because I think it's I think it'll be fun. And there's precedent, right? I mean, track and field athletics has lower hurdles for women because their legs are shorter. It's got a lighter yeah. shot, javelin, discus, hammer, because they want you want the distance to be 81 meters, not 58. <laughs> so you do it to to create an outcome, and I think the outcome is entertainment. That's a really good point um, with the comparisons to other sports. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm even more in solidly in this camp now that this trial should go ahead and we should look at it. Well, so that's that's yeah, brilliant. We've hyped it, so I'm going to take it back. I'll let you know what happens. Uh, well, let's let's. Intended, but the ball is now in your court. <laughs> this is now on you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Um, <laughs> Let's finish up just talking about the tournament. Uh, we, that's where we began and that's where we'll end. Have you seen anything to dissuade you from your initial opinion about who plays the final and who wins it? <laughs> so I thought from the beginning that we were likely to see in England. England are in the final for me no matter what. And that's yeah. not because I'm British, um, because I think you'd have to be daft to think that England wouldn't be in the final. Agreed. They're the number one team in the world with... Are we on twenty-seven or twenty-eight wins in a row now? I don't well, think anyone's counting. I'm not. Sure. I think it's. And I think it was twenty-seven after France. I'm not sure when this podcast goes out, but you're playing South Africa next, so it's going to be twenty-eight. Yeah, so. I mean to be fair. Um, so yes, it, it. It. I mean, almost certainly will be twenty-eight by the the end of the the pool stages then. And I was then torn between France and New Zealand. Now. I mean, it's been a it's been an incredible tournament. I have to say, I would like to see an England New Zealand final. I think that would be best in terms of the rugby we'll see on the pitch. Mm. Simon Middleton, the England head coach, gave a really good uh, speech to his players, and he basically said there are no rugby World Cup final ever has been one that's been full of remarkable rugby. It's attritional. It's that kind of tiny gains and and being pushed back a meter and constantly trying to get forward because you don't want to risk things and all of that. So it might not be a spectacle, but I think New Zealand would provide the most entertaining final for sure. As we saw in 2017, Mm. that was a phenomenal final. New Zealand coming back in the second half and playing a brand of rugby that England hadn't seen them play before and really running rings around them to, to eventually come back and win it. I'd love to see that. I think that New Zealand have impressed me with their older players. Portia Woodman, for example, really has impressed me so far Mm. against Wales as well. We saw, I would say in the first round, I was quite worried about their defence, but against Wales then I was much much more impressed with their um, defensive structures. So 
I think I'd like to see New Zealand. France, having lost Lausanne Zeus, their scrum half, honestly, they France build their game around their scrum half. And so it is a huge impact losing your best player who's had to be forced into an early retirement because of this knee injury she sustained against England. Yeah. Um, I think that will damage France's hopes to be in the final, if I'm very honest. Mm. But my my hopes, my I, my real hope is that Canada get into the final because I think that would be exciting. England would win it, I'm almost certain, but I think that I'd love to see it not be an England-New Zealand final. Yeah, I've... I've <laughs> is that sitting on the fence too much? But I think England are going to win the World Cup regardless of who's in the final against them, but I would like to see New Zealand. That's my sh- that's, I'd like to see Canada, and I think it'll be New Zealand. That's my short answer. Yeah, I, I suspect the same. I mean, you would have, you'd have been crazy to bet against England. The, the, the game against France now, the, the second match of the pool stages was, I think, 13-7, right? That's, is that as close as they've been run in the 27 games? Ooh, Certainly it is in the last... Know. In the last two Six Nations, no one's come that close. No, I, well, I know that England had never conceded, had never had never won a game with it. Let me think. No, I think France came. There was a closer draw between England and France where England came out by like two points back in 2018. They had two tests then. I think England very narrowly won one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but without seeing the results in front of me, I don't know that for certain. It, um, but yeah, it was it was so tight. And absolutely, in the 70th minute, I thought France had had another try in them. Uh, and we, they could have very close. They, they were very close to ending that reign for sure. It was it was the most, um, it was the closest one-sided match I've ever seen. <laughs> because, yeah, that's a very good way of fitting it. Because England did control the match, I thought. At no point but, did it look like England would lose, and then they could a lot. It was amazing, and I think I'll, I'll get the numbers off by a handful here. But I think France made two hundred and twenty tackles, and England made sixty. And I th- <laughs> and it was seventy percent territory and possession in, in England's favour. Like, and so how France hung in there? Had they not lost, and they lost, they lost other players also, right? They had the concussion to the eight. Very yeah, Roman Mendes. Yeah, and, we lo- she she lost. Um, she she had to leave that match as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the loss of those players for France is probably the decisive thing between them, New Zealand, Canada on the other side of the, on the other side of the draw. So you'd imagine England. It'll be interesting to see a team that then goes into the final on, twenty nine wins or thirty wins, and then suddenly finds a bit of pressure. They change the behaviour, they change the formula. That's probably the only chance. That plus, if it's New Zealand home ground, maybe it's worth a few points. Maybe not in a World Cup final, who knows. But I think I agree with you. That That's the that's the final I would want to see. It's got rematch potential. It's got home yeah. ground. And you'd imagine, you'd imagine that's a world record attendance if that happens, right? They'll sell it out then. I would love them to set it out and I'd love to hit the record. And I think as well, you know, as, as we saw in the Euros in here, which is the only thing I can compare it to, the women's football Euros, games weren't sold out before the tournament started. Then as the tournament went on, the final sold out. And I think the final might have been sold out, but um, other games then, the knockout games were sold, were setting out really quickly and you couldn't really even get to a pool stage game by the time they came around because it, mm. it, the hype was there. I would absolutely love it if the final is is sold out and we hit a world record for attendance at a women's match. Mm. As a journalist as well, the England-New Zealand revenge match is absolutely the one that would get the headlines and and is exciting. It has all the drama that you need this tournament to have if we're going to create 
growth then for the the tournaments coming up in in the next year and then looking towards the next world cup which in many ways is more exciting to me than the one we're in now because of the potential of where mm. we'll be then yeah much much excitement if if that happens are you gonna jump on a plane and get down there <laughs> to to new zealand yeah no, unfortunately, I'm not going. I wish I was. Um, my colleague Elgin Alderman will be at the court, out in New Zealand from the quarterfinal stages. I'm a full-time sub-editor as well as a rugby journalist, so I'm very much needed on the sports desk in London for all the Football World Cup previews and stuff like that that will be coming out. So, yeah, unfortunately, I'm tied to my desk, but Elgin is a fantastic women's rugby writer. He's got a very good knowledge of the game. He even went to school with some of the Wales, with one of the Wales players and just knows the game inside out. So mm. excited to see what he's writing, but incredibly jealous because I absolutely I'd love to go to New Zealand. Well, you'll get your home wine in five, four years, three years, three years time. Not long. Not long to wait. So much excitement. I mean, it's just, it really is a wonderful time for the sport. As It's difficult to not get excited and enthused about the potential. And uh, exactly. yeah, there's so much positive inertia that uh, it can only get better, you'd hope. I mean, it can, <laughs> I say that optimistically, it can always get worse too, but I, th I think there's enough goodwill and momentum that I hope it gets better. You're absolutely right. I think it's growing every year. We see record-breaking attendances and view viewing figures in the Six Nations every year. There's the the goal is that the next six stations that the RFU will have sold out Twickenham for the England versus France match, which is an 82,000 seater stadium. That could be possible in 2023 next year. The other goal is to sell out the stadium in 2025 for the World Cup final then, which I think we'll absolutely achieve. It's mm. whether to, it, to me, the goal is can we sell it out next year? And I think if England win the World Cup, which again, I do think they, they will. I'm not a betting woman, but I would put my money on it if I was. Um, then we could have a, potentially, there's room to have an 80,000 audience to to watch women's rugby only next april so yeah. yeah the sport's growing in a on a in a huge way and i'm really excited to see where we are in three years time yeah and of course the the, the demand feeds the supply and then all these things that i'm sure you've heard so many times about you know the women's game isn't bringing in money we can't put money into it as a consequence these things all disappear because suddenly you've got the fans the the eyes on tvs sponsorship goes as a response it's just one feeds the next thing and so that's that's why i'm i'm encouraged yeah i mean we should say women's england have a loss making still fully professional with that still loss sure, making sure, yeah, they will do for um, a while i think yeah but and they will they will do it's an investment mm, but i mm. think yeah build it and they will come even just last Saturday, I hosted the official World Rugby Watch Party for England versus France in central London at 7.30 in the morning. There are over 100 rugby fans there. And if we can get 100 rugby fans to travel from around the country, because some of them travelled really far, to get to central London by half seven in the morning, we know that we're going to have, you know, many, many people watching the the Six Nations next year, Eight, 800,000 people tuned in to watch that game live as well mm. across the UK. 
of the England versus France match. So if we have 800,000 people awake at 8am to watch women's rugby, there's a great chance that we'll be able to sell out big stadiums soon, I think. Yeah, and, and of course it's going to take time. I mean, it's not going to happen at the click of a finger. Um, I've always felt no. it takes like four generations. You know, the first one to reject it, the second one to do it badly, third one to perfect it, and four to benefit. And I feel like we're in the we're in the two to three transition and... Anyway, for so many reasons, and I think you've you've made very clear in, in, in a very engaging way what the reasons for that optimism are. So on that note, maybe we, we wrap this up and let me say thanks very much for your time and your expertise. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great. And again, thank you for letting me ask you some questions as well. <laughs> I've learned a lot. Very good. Not a problem at all. I'm happier asking them, uh, answering them, I think, sometimes than I'm asking, but you've been great. So thanks very much, Jess, and enjoy the rest of the World Cup. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.